Good morning. For those of you who might not know me, my name is Jake. I'm one of the elders here. Before we open God's word, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the ability to come here this morning to gather together as your people. We thank you that we were able to see three people get baptized in your name, um, rejoice with them, and be reminded that we are new creations in you. And pray that you would prepare all of our hearts, both for the word this morning and for the rest of this month as we continue to prepare for your coming. I pray this in your name. Amen. We all know Christmas is about more than just the cultural celebrations that we enjoy. There's nothing wrong with those. We enjoy the tree and the decorations and the music and the food and the gifts. We enjoy those things. Our family watched Elf last night. But we also know that there's a danger sometimes in those secondary things becoming the primary thing when Christmas is about so much more than that. We know Christmas is about the birth of Christ. We know it's a time to remember and celebrate his coming into the world. We love the, the cultural trappings of Christmas because they help get us in that Christmas spirit. They give us that warm, fuzzy Christmas feeling. And sometimes I wonder if we can fall into a trap of loving the sacred things of Christmas for the same reason. Do we light the Advent candles the same way we light the tree? Do we love singing, O come all ye faithful, because it's comfortable and familiar in the same way that chestnuts roasting on an open fire is? Do we go to the Christmas Eve service because we we can walk away feeling that warm, fuzzy Christmas feeling? Or do we do all of these things year after year? Because even after all this time, we are still shocked that God would become a man. That the God of the universe would look on us, creatures in his own image, who have rebelled against him and tried to kill him and set ourselves up in his place, looked on the misery and the brokenness we brought on ourselves with compassion and love and said, I need to go down there with them. Dorothy Sayers is one of my favorite authors, and she described the incarnation this way. She said, this is the tale of the time when God was the underdog and got beaten. When he submitted to the conditions he made and became a man like the men he made, and the men he made broke him and killed him. 
This is the terrifying drama of which God is the victim and hero. That man should play the tyrant over God and find him a better man than himself is an astonishing drama indeed. Any journalist hearing of it for the first time would recognize it as news and good news at that. Though we are likely to forget that the word gospel ever meant anything so sensational. Our passage this morning is Luke 1, 26 to 38. And as we read it together, read it for the astonishing, sensational piece of news that it is. Luke 1, 26 to 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Last week, Andy preached on the announcements of the birth of John the Baptist. John would be the forerunner of the Messiah, the one who would make straight the path. And Gabriel foretold John's birth in a setting that seemed fitting for that role. Gabriel appeared to Zechariah in Jerusalem, in the temple, the heart of religious life for the Jewish people. Zechariah heard the good news of the birth of his son surrounded by all of the amazing, intricate trappings of the temple. He's there in front of the golden incense altar, the seven-branch candlestick. There are worshipers outside. That's the sort of setting you would expect for someone so important as the one who would prepare God's people for his coming. In contrast to that, though, the announcement that God was becoming flesh wasn't accompanied by any impressive architecture or rich religious ceremonies. There were no worshipers outside praying. In keeping with the humility of the king of kings who left his throne for his people, 
His birth is announced in the quiet home of a young girl in little Nazareth. And just imagine what it must have been like for Mary. Zechariah was not prepared for what happened. He couldn't be. But at least he woke up that morning expecting some sort of deep, profound religious moment. Mary is just going about her usual day in her home. And all of a sudden, Gabriel, the one who stands before the presence of the Lord, shows up and says, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. And angels aren't the cute, fat-winged babies of paintings. They are terrifying warriors of light. And all of a sudden, one standing right in front of her, saying, Mary, God has been gracious to you. He is with you. And Mary's troubled by that. And it might seem a little confusing at first, like, okay, I get he's an angel and he's scary. But unlike Zechariah, who was afraid just at the sight of Gabriel, the text here says Mary's troubled by what he has to say. Favored one, the Lord is with you. Why be troubled by that? I mean, that sounds comforting and encouraging. You know, my favorite Christmas song is I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. And one of the reasons it's my favorite is the first verse says, I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Peace on earth, goodwill to men. Those are sweet words, but those are wild words too. That God would declare peace on earth means that God's also declaring victory over his enemies. Those are wild, untamed words. There's nothing safe about that, about God showing up and declaring his victory. And I was reminded of that as I was preparing for this morning. I think similarly, if an angel appears in front of you and says, God has been gracious to you. God is with you. I think you probably get some clarity, not just into how sweet those words are, but how wild they actually are. Nothing can be the same for the person that God has shown favor to and that God is with. Mary had been going about her quiet day in her own home in little Nazareth, getting ready for a quiet, simple life married to the carpenter down the street. And an angel appeared and turned everything on its head. Nothing could be the same after this. And so Gabriel reiterates that she shouldn't be afraid in verse 30 and tells her why he's come. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Notice the answer to her fears of being told she's found favor with God is to dive deeper into that favor.
Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. You will have a son, Mary, and you're going to call him Jesus. Yeshua, the Lord saves. And that was a common enough name. Jewish parents had been naming their sons Jesus for centuries in the hope that one day God would fulfill his promises of salvation for his people. But your son, Mary, is no ordinary Jesus. You're going to name him Jesus not in the hope that God will keep his promises but because he is the fulfillment of that hope. He's going to be great. Gabriel told Zechariah that John was going to be great before the Lord, but your son Mary is just great. No qualifiers, no descriptors, great. Greatness itself incarnate. And if there's any doubt in your mind, Mary, what I'm talking about, he will be the son of the Most High. And God will give him the throne of his father David to reign forever. This son of yours, Mary, is no ordinary son. He is the fulfillment of the hope, the hopes and promises that go back to the beginning of time itself. He is the heir who will rule from David's throne in peace forever. He is the seed that will crush the serpent's head. He is the Son of God, the long-awaited-for Messiah. And it's hard for us to wrap our minds around what exactly that would have meant for Mary to hear that. Ever since Adam and Eve fell in the garden, the people of God had lived in hope of the promised seed who would crush the serpent's head, and every woman of God would have wondered, am I... Am I going to be the one who brings the promised seed into this world? If you remember from our summer series in Genesis, that theme of the hope of the coming seed was throughout the book of Genesis. And you also remember how disappointing the heirs of that promise were. There was so much hope when Cain was born and he murdered Abel. Noah was supposed to bring a second chance to creation. And the first thing he did was plant a vineyard so he could get drunk. Jacob thought that he had to lie and steal in order to take God's promises for himself. But over the millennia, that hope remained that one day the seed would come and would crush the head of the serpent. Then David enters the scene. God anoints David king and tells him that he's a man after his own heart. And more than that, he promises, one day an heir of yours will be seated on the throne and I will establish him forever. Forever. 
This promised heir will rule my people in peace without end. And each woman of the line of David would wonder, am I going to be the one who mothers the forever king? But to say that David's descendants were a bit of a mixed bag is generous to his descendants. After Solomon dies, so many of them do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, to the point where in the Babylonian, in the Babylonian captivity, his heirs are cut off from the throne, and Israel is ruled by a succession of oppressive foreign invaders. What had come of God's promises? David's heir would rule without end. David's heir hasn't ruled in centuries. God had made such grand promises back then in the hazy, distant past. But God had been silent for 400 years. And it's not like those 400 years had been smooth sailing either. Israel found itself a pawn in a game played by much bigger players. They were swapped back and forth between warring superpowers. Foreign oppressor followed foreign oppressor. They were used and abused year after year, century after century. 160 years before this, the king of Syria had walked into the temple and sacrificed a pig on God's altar to Zeus. God had promised the heir of David would rule forever. But they're under the heel of Rome. Rome who sets up sociopaths like Herod as their puppets. The people of God were weighed down by the brokenness and darkness they were under. Their chains were heavy on them. And they clung to the promises of God but he'd been silent for 400 years. And that's when Gabriel appears to a young girl in Nazareth and says, Mary, you're the one. Mary, your son will be the heir of David. He will rule his people in peace forever. He will crush the head of the serpent. Gabriel had told Zechariah that his prayer had been heard and that Elizabeth would have a son. The fulfillment of the prayers and hopes of one couple's lifetime. But your son, Mary, is the fulfillment of every hope and every prayer of every man and woman of God going back to the beginning of time. God had not forgotten his people or his promises to them. He had always promised that he would rescue his people from their plight. Not the plight they thought they needed rescue from. They wanted to be free from Rome. They were tired of being invaded by the next ruling superpower. They were tired of not having freedom. They thought that was why God would send their Messiah. But the promise of God was something so much bigger than that. His promise was not to free them from Rome 
or Babylon or Syria. His promise was to free them from the oppression of sin and death. He would heal the deep pain and mend the utter brokenness. He would bring light into the darkness and life where there had only been death and decay. And he would do this by entering into the mess that we made. And it is our mess that we made. We are broken because we broke ourselves on the law. We were dead because we drank the poison of sin. We made the mess, and he entered into the mess that we made. All of the pain and the brokenness of this world that weighs us down is the result of our sin and our desire to take his place as the God of our own lives. Yet he looked on us with love and compassion. He emptied himself of his glory and he took on human flesh in order that he might one day share his glory with us. And you ever wonder what it must have been like for Israel during those 400 years. They waited so long in the brokenness and the darkness. They waited and they waited as tragedy followed tragedy, insult followed insult, invading, pillaging army followed invading, pillaging army. They waited you have to imagine that God's silence weighed as heavily on them as the pain and the brokenness did. What must that 400 years have felt like for God's people? I don't think we actually have to work that hard to imagine what it was like for them because we're waiting for him too. God has kept his promises. Jesus has come. But even though all of the promises of God are fully ours in Christ, we don't fully experience them yet, do we? We're still waiting for the Messiah. And like Israel, we find ourselves in a world full of pain and suffering. And sometimes even it feels like God's silent. Like Israel, we're still waiting for the Messiah. We're waiting for the day when he will wipe away every tear from every eye. When he will draw us to himself. He is seated on the throne of David forever, but we're still waiting to enter the throne room. Advent is always a time for me that not only draws me back to when Christ first came. But also, I find my thoughts and my desires looking forward to the day when he'll come back. And so, we had just nailed down who was going to preach what sermon a couple weeks ago. And so, I knew I was preaching this. And so, immediately, I started being drawn towards the desire 
for Christ to return. So that's kind of what my day had been like, was meditating on that, and I went to work. And for those of you who don't know, I'm a dispatcher for the Chicago Police Department. So I go into work, and I'm working a busy part of the city. And I get a call for shots fired. Someone heard a couple of gunshots, they didn't see anything. As you can imagine, that is not an unusual call for us to get. Happens all the time, send a couple of cars over there. Usually they don't find anything, that's the end of it. So I send a couple of cars over there and then go back to giving out the rest of the jobs. And then after a minute you hear on the radio, emergency. Squad, we got somebody shot here. He's young. He's like 14. He's in very, very grave condition. We need an ambulance here now. He was 14. And he never even made it to the hospital. Some days we feel the weight of the brokenness of this world more than others. I know I did that day. But even as I felt the weight of a world where a 14-year-old kid is killed on the street like that, I was overwhelmed by the assurance that Christ will come back that he keeps his promises. That he will wipe away every tear from every eye. That suffering and death will be no more. Even as we wait, even as we feel weighed down by the pain and brokenness of the world, we know that he keeps his promises. Some of you might be feeling weighed down by the brokenness and pain of this world. Whether it's broken relationships or financial problems, whatever it is, the weight of your sin, he keeps his promises and he has said that he will come back. If you looked at the bulletin this morning, you might have noticed that the title of the sermon is Surely I Am Coming Soon. Andy pointed out last week that when God sent Gabriel to Zechariah, he picked up right where he'd left off 400 years earlier. Gabriel's message to Zechariah was the same one that God had left the people of Israel with Malachi at the end of the Old Testament. God hadn't forgotten. He keeps his promises. And so when we're weighed down by the darkness and the pain of this world, when we're tempted to feel like God is silent, and he's been silent for a lot longer than 400 years this time, I think we do well to remember the last words of Jesus in the New Testament. At the end of the book of Revelation, his last words to his people 
or surely I am coming soon. This is his final promise in scripture. And one day he will pick up right where he left off. He entered into the muck and mire of this world once. He took on our flesh and our weakness. He emptied himself in order to lower himself down to us. But he has promised that he will come again, this time to raise us up to himself. Advent is a time where we prepare ourselves and build up the anticipation towards Christmas when we celebrate his coming. The fulfillment of all of God's promises. And my prayer for us as a church is that it will also be a time to build our anticipation for that day when he will come again and we will experience all of his promises fully. So let us respond to Christ's final words same way the Apostle John did. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, you are coming soon. And we praise you for that, and we look forward to that. And I pray that we would not be satisfied with the level of anticipation we already feel, but that we would hunger for you to grow that desire and anticipation in us, that we would be a people who are starving for the day when you will come back. And even as we wait, I pray that you would fill us with your spirit and with the knowledge and the certainty that you do keep your promises, that you are not slow as some count slowness, Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.